So I think librarians are really good at mysteries. I mean, there are actually, and, and I'm not making this up, times when a person will say, you know, I read this great book about the symbolism on the flags of the world. I think the book was read and the librarian can find it. There are a lot of stories like this. In the, in, they can find the one book that the person wanted and the person is absolutely astonished. Hello, PKMers. Welcome back to Personal Knowledge Management with Aiden Halfon, the podcast where I interview fellow PKMers and dive into the unique ways they use their PKM systems for work, creativity, and life. This week, we have Susan with 40 years as a senior librarian and administrator. Susan's professional background includes extensive experience in organizational, cultural, and positive change and project management. She worked for close to 30 years in academic libraries and thus knows a lot about information and the way it's managed in society. We talk about how the internet has changed people's relationships with information, how librarians can help people find information in the digital age, how we can be less biased researchers, and the generational differences in informational habits between young and old people. Susan, how do you believe the U.S. society's relationship to information has changed since you first started studying information and library science back in 1980. Information just expands. The amount of information keeps expanding and expanding and expanding as we go on. I think information was always accessible, but what is happening now is that the amount of information that is available at a moment's notice is overwhelming. Before, you had to go to a research facility and use printed volumes of indexes. There was something called, you know, a very basic service was um, Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature, that which is basically an index to all of the more popular journals like Newsweek and Time and so forth. And you could go and look up a topic and it could, would give you a list of the dates and issues of those. Now that's all online. So you know, all of the indexing is online. So the amount of information produced because of technology has uh, expanded exponentially. And the amount, the volume of information that one gets from searching online has triple, I mean, it's the, the amount can be overwhelming. There's a great graphic that I've seen a lot of librarians use that shows a fire hydrant with the water spewing, you know, out everywhere. And <laughs> the line says, Google can give you a hundred million trillion responses. Librarians get you the right one. Um, <laughs> I find that to be true because um, if you're an information uh, specialist professional, um, you know how to weave through all of the volume of material to narrow it down to the topic that the person is looking for. So in terms of, you know, the relationship of, of, of information to how people use it today, the amount of it is just overwhelming and it's doubling and tripling and quadrupling every day. Um, so it's almost overwhelming for people. And so what happened is that I think there was a, there was a, a situation, there was a great book that was done back in the early 2000s called The Long Tail. And it talked about how due to the great volume of information that's being produced, most people would start to segment and narrow their what they were looking for and therefore narrowing their world. So, and I think I've seen that happen as well. We can certainly see that with all of the, you know, what's been happening over the last four or five years in terms of most people will 
get onto social media and listen to or look at what interests them. Very, they narrow their topics very specifically and they create a community of people. They create their community of people who are, you know, with them, you know, have similar interests and everything rather than expanding out to learn things that they necessarily don't know. So in some ways it's narrowed our world. At the same time, it's overwhelmed us. So it sounds like the, clearly the amount of information has gotten much, much greater because of the internet. Yes. And almost paradoxically, that has at the same time expanded the amount of things that we can go down. But it's also created, I believe they're called echo chambers. Yes. Because oh, yep. ne- now you can hone in on a, on a little segment and group of people. I'm interested in hearing with your experience and the experience of other librarians, what do you think it is about your skill set as a librarian that allows you to hone in on this information in a way that the general populace might not be able to do? There's one thing that can never be replaced by a computer, at least not yet, they may get there, is that the interpersonal connection is by having someone. So what happens most of the time with a reference desk is someone will come up to the reference desk and say, I'm looking for a book on pandemics. And you think, okay, well, there are thousands of books on pandemics. And you say, oh, were you looking for the, the flu that was in 1918 and 1920? Were you looking for, you know, the black, the plague that was in the Middle Ages? What are you, you know, so you do that question and answer um, session with the person to narrow down what exactly is this. And what you might find out is they're looking for a very specific book about the black plague that took place in um, a part of England where maybe they had relatives. So a lot of, most of the time people come in when they ask, they have something specific in mind, but it's intimidating to walk up to a desk and ask someone for help. So they start with a very broad question. What I think Mm -hmm. librarians can do really well is navigate what we call the reference interview which is how you work with people to figure out what is it that they really need and you get down to that and then you can help them find a a range of resources where they can start to do research and, and even narrow down their their search even more i've seen it over and over and over over the 40 years i've been a librarian so it sounds like the librarians have that interpersonal ability to help the person that's coming to them figure out what it is they're actually looking for. Yes. It helps them articulate it. Yeah. I think it helps, help articulate, helps them, helps them to articulate what they want and they may not even be quite sure themselves. So I think librarians are really good at mysteries. I mean, there are actually, and, and I'm not making this up, um, times when a person will say, you know, I read this great book about um, all the, you know, the, the symbolism on the flags of the world. I think the book was read and the librarian can find it. There are a lot of stories like this. In the, in they can find the one book that the person wanted. The person is absolutely astonished. But by just, you know, keeping on asking details about what they're looking for, you can help them locate it. That's something that uh, I think Google as a general search can't do. I mean, it's a great tool. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of an online reader's guide to periodical literature, which was always a very general kind of index. It was a printed index. 
So Google, you know, it's a great tool. It's wonderful. I remember the day it started. <laughs> and we were all kind of watching, like, well, here's this new search engine. How's this going to work? You know, we've been watching it over the years. So it's a great tool. But I think that human interaction um, is, is um, you know, ever since Google came, so I'm 69, and ever since Google came in the mid-90s, people keep telling me, well, you know, pretty soon we're just not going to need libraries. Well, that just hasn't happened. They're needed even, they're needed more than ever, I think. That is so fascinating. It almost <laughs> sounds like librarians are like Batman. They because are. Because <laughs> they, they're, they're great detectives. They're like, you know, what is this person looking for? <laughs> And I love, you know, as I'm watching the next, you know, well, two generations beyond me come in and they're, they're really, they're cool, you know. Um, so the, the, the young librarians coming in are, you know, there's always the stereotype. People always, you know, do the stereotype with the glasses and the bun and blah, blah, blah. But librarians are, um, I think, the most creative and incredible people. If you go to an American Library Association, you will see librarians of every, some that are tattooed completely and, you know, crazy dressers and some that fit the stereotype. There are some that fit the stereotype. That's why there are stereotypes, right? Because some people fit that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I think that, you know, that, that there's a, it's a joke among librarians about the myth of the, the librarian with the glasses and the bun who's very timid and quiet because believe me, <laughs> the things you have to deal with in libraries, not just the research materials, but just the human behavior is quite something. I think it's so important to to note that because I know my perception of librarians before hearing this mm -hmm. was that they were very analytical, not creative thinkers um, because when I think of librarians, I think of like putting books in the right spot or folders. And it sounds like from what you're saying, that is a completely stereotypical view because in some ways they have to use creativity more than many, many other jobs because they have to figure out, okay, what is it that this person is actually looking for in this entire vast swath of information that I could recommend them? Yes, that's true. And, you know, in terms of the, you know, all the things you mentioned, the, the analytical and where does this book go? I think that there are, there, there are skills that certain librarians have that are essential. So you have, so no librarian fits into one mold, you know, into a narrow mold. So you do need someone with those kind of analytical skills to do cataloging because they need to know because the cataloging determines where the, where the book is placed in the library so that people can find it. And by the way, most of the metadata and all of the cataloging material that is used by almost all of the online book resources was cataloged by a librarian somewhere. And there's a giant international database called OCLC, started in Ohio, it was the Ohio Computer Library Center. It is a huge billion um, record database of all the cataloging that's been done. And, you know, a lot of online resources and search engines will pull from that. That's how that people are able to find their books is because somewhere some librarian cataloged it. Um, and I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. But you do, but back to the kind of, you know, to the librarians uh, kind of library, you need someone analytical to do cataloging to make sure they get the very specific details down about that. I didn't like cataloging. 
I'm more of a people person. So you also need people who like to do, to engage in that kind of research where you help people narrow down their topic and find the right resources. So you need the librarians who really understand collections. So you have specialists in libraries, collection development specialists. So you might have someone with a master's in English who understands all of the resources for English literature. Or you might have someone who's a science librarian who's a chemist because they understand all of that. So librarians often have a second degree and a specialization because they do collection development or specialized reference services. And then you have people who are project managers and then administrators, you know, to figure out. So I was a big, one of the things I, I was as a project manager a lot for automation, like how do we automate circulation um, or how do we, um, create an inventory control system for the library annex that connects with the online catalog. That was the kind of project that I had. So you need, you know, I think that most people think of the librarian as checking books out or sitting at the reference desk and or telling people to be quiet, but they cover the spectrum of every kind of area of specialty. So in a public library, you also need someone who really understands children's and youth services, you know, all those resources, as well as um, reader's advisory is huge. Someone comes in and says, I really liked uh, War and Peace. I need something else like that. So we have librarians who are amazing at figuring out those genres and recommending to people. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a very deep and wide variety of skills that librarians have that I think people don't understand. That's okay. Mm. <laughs> it's our secret. It's our secret. <laughs> That's <weapon>. your secret. <laughs> the librarian <laughs> secret. You only know if you become a librarian. <laughs> it sounds yeah. like it's just a special initiation. It's special initiation. <laughs> the reward for going to Batman yeah. school. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it sounds like just using the term librarian, while it is useful to talk with that label if you're in like the general population, it's actually much more nuanced than that. How did yeah. you know what type of librarian you wanted to become? We, uh, because I think sometimes what happens is, I think how a lot of librarians, I mean, I do know some people who, you know, finish college and know immediately they wanted to be a librarian. I was working on a master's in English and I re realized that I liked doing the research more than I liked writing the thesis. But I also worked in a library uh, when I was in graduate school and my job was uh, interlibrary loan. So someone was working on their thesis, for example, on medieval lit, they would come in and they, they needed a resource. And I had to look across the vast network of libraries. This was all in print at that time to find out who had that book. And then we had a, 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 a early version of a, a computer. It was called a, a TWX, a telex machine, basically where you could borrow materials and you had to know all the bibliographic data so that you could get that book for them. So I did an interlibrary loan. Um, and then I worked at the reference desk and I really liked help people, helped helping people with research. So I, when I moved to Ithaca um, and I went to you know, the University of Buffalo, I discovered that I really liked project management, specialized projects, and also leadership and management. So I went uh, into a leadership and management field and did a lot of administration, but also a lot of projects. So I really liked the, um, the project management, you know, I had a lot of projects. I can go on and on about those. <laughs> so it sounds like the specific type of librarian you discovered you wanted to be was a lot more people oriented than yes. the, yeah, 
I didn't, you know, and you had to take a broad, like with any course of study, you have to take a broad spectrum. So I had to take cataloging and learn to catalog a book. And it's mm-hmm. essential. It's how you find the book online. But I did not want to be a cataloger because it's just, I'm a, I'm a people person. I'm very extroverted and I like working with people. And I liked figuring out how do we, we had a completely manual card file. So people had to fill out a card in Olin Library to check books out. I had to figure out how do you automate circulation so that it's, you know, you basically it was, how do you figure out how to barcode all the books? You know, now, now, now they just come barcoded, but then they weren't. So, you know, Olin, I think had about 5 million books in it at that time. So now the Cornell libraries, I think has 7 million books. So actually that's wrong. Olin couldn't have had 5 million, but they probably had two and a half million is what is something like that. So we had to figure out how do you barcode the books and get the book connected to the record in the database, which sounds mm. so foreign now because it's just so standard. But that was that was one of the first big projects I had. One of the things that you mentioned earlier, which I found very interesting, is how typically when someone wants to find a piece of information now, they'll just Google it or they'll go on YouTube and while that often is a a way to find the information they're looking for, it's completely up to the whim of the algorithm and the recommendations that the Google Analytics or YouTube Analytics believes that they will like. And it sounds like one of the benefits of going to a librarian is they can give that human aspect where they can find something even more specific or possibly something that isn't as prone to getting them into a YouTube rabbit hole, as I like to say, or an echo chamber. So I wanted to know, why do you think it is that when you have these, these librarians with these powers to do that, that they're so underutilized and uh, in today's society? I, you know, I think even when you had just print resources, that was the case, you know, because, you know, think about, I mean, if you think about, I don't know, let's think about a, a movie that's very popular right now. It's a wonderful life. And, and it's a wonderful life. He sees what his life would have been if he, you know, hadn't been born. And he meets up with, um, you know, the main, uh, the lead woman character, who, if he had never met her, she was a librarian. And the the, the image of her in the movie is sort of sad and plain and lonely and just wanting to shelve books. So I think that the, the um, misunderstanding of libraries has always been there. But the amount of knowledge that librarians gain over uh, the working at a reference desk is unbelievable. I mean, I still remember the, um, we used to have a contest about when I was at, I worked in Eurus Library for six years before I went to Olin Library. And at that time, Eurus was the undergraduate library. It had a collection specifically designed for undergraduate study. And we we would have a, had a competition with the librarians over in Olin Library over who had the most unusual reference question for that week. And one week <laughs> I won because the question was, what is the name of the fear of peanut butter getting stuck to the roof of your mouth? What's the name of that phobia? There is one. It's true. And that was a reference question that I had gotten. And at that time, there was a very popular book called The Book of Lists. And I found it in that book, but it was in a print book. I think that librarians are probably more appreciated now than they were pre-Google, you know, is what what I see. Um, Because libraries are really good at adapting. And so, for example, in, in yours and Olin, I know in Man, 
you know, as, as uh, new trends have come along, I mean, librarians were the first organizations to use metadata. I mean, we started talking about metadata in 1988, and it's not, it didn't become a much bigger thing until later. As people understood, cataloging was metadata. So I think what I've seen, though, is libraries continue to evolve and change to meet the user needs. So now they have, you know, digital labs and uh, makerspaces and um, all kinds of create, creative uh, creativity tools on computers. Um, so I think that they're really good at adapting to the needs. You know, so like I said, I'm 69. And ever since I was about 30, people have been telling me that li- we're not going to need libraries anymore because everything will just be online. So it's, I don't think that will happen for a long time. You know, for one thing, many of the books who were printed pre-computer are not scanned yet. <laughs> They're not available digitally. In the vast world of information, a lot of people do come to a reference desk and say, I tried to look this up on Google and I I got 3 million responses and I I don't know how to choose which one is right. Yeah. So I think that they're... Um, there's, they are more appreciated than they were. Perhaps that's overly mm. optimistic, but it seems to me they are. Well, my first question is, what is the phobia of getting peanut butter stuck to your mouth called? Oh my gosh, Which- I wish I could. It's, I cannot pronounce it. It's like A-R-A-C-H. It's like arachnobutyophobia or something like that. It's like <laughs> peanut, the Latin for peanut, you know, something. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a real question that I got. I never forgot it, you know. And um, well, I can tell you that is a phobia I would not want to have because I consume a lot of peanut butter. So I know. <laughs> peanut yeah. butter cups, one of my favorites. <laughs> I, I'd love to ask more about why it is you think that librarians gain so much knowledge over the course of their time working as a librarian. You know, because they're. Because you're essentially doing research all the time. You know, if someone has a research question, I haven't been at a reference desk in quite a while, but as an administrator, so for example, as a director of Tompkins County Public Library, I had to understand what the rules and regulations were for public libraries, because what I didn't know when I took the job was that the public libraries in New York State are governed by education law. So... That was surprising. So I had to go and do, I had to be, I was my, I was a student and my own librarian, you know, so I had to go and do research on what is the education law about public librarians. So I had to learn that. And then I learned that the Tompkins County Public Library is the central library of the Finger Lakes library system. I'm thinking, well, what does that mean? So then I went and found that education law in the New York constitution established library systems for counties so the finger lakes library system is 33 libraries in five counties and tompkins county was the main library so it was like it was the olin library that's how i because i had been at cornell would could reference it it was the biggest main library for all 33 of those libraries and then there were some really strange regulations like uh, maintenance of effort, you know, which was had meant there was a burden on the local government for funding. So I had to do research on that. So all of that is to use, use that as an example to say that I became an expert on education law as it pertains to public libraries because I had to do the research for it. So if a patron had come to me and said, can you tell me how the how public libraries are organized? 
it would have been, if that was a reference question, I would have had to do that same process. So I had to do it for myself to learn. So I think that librarians retain a lot of their knowledge because they have to do this deep research. And it's interesting. People have interesting questions and they're working on interesting books. And, um, you know, a lot of professors at, um, at Cornell would come into the reference desk and get the reference librarian to help them do research. So, yeah, I think you, you retain a lot of it and you certainly retain memory of the resources that you use to find those answers. I did. And I think most librarians I know do. Last year in June, it, when I mean, I'm retired, but the public library had a fundraiser for the library and they called it, um, hold on, let me ask a librarian. And it was um, a trivia um, quiz, like a quiz show, like, wait, wait, don't tell me on NPR. And um, they had me and two other people. And the entire trivia was based on things that um, actually happened at uh, Tompkins County Public Library. So there was an enormous range of trivia about the library that, um, you know, that made up the questions for it. So I think that's one of the things that said, you want a librarian on your team if you have to do any kind of trivia game. I mean, nobody ever will play any of those trivia games with me because I know I, I always win. <laughs> the librarian. <laughs> as soon as they know you're a librarian, they're like, oh, um, I'm good, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so it funny. It used to be that they, there was a very popular trivia game, Trivial Pursuit. Yeah, Trivial Pursuit was a popular game. Nobody will play with me. <laughs> I always win. <laughs> it sounds like one of the reasons that you gain so much knowledge as a, especially like a reference librarian is you get asked all these questions from people coming in and you have to research to, to answer those questions. So I'd, I'd be interested in hearing, was there any other questions aside from peanut butter <laughs> uh, phobia <laughs> that you found particularly enjoyable or interesting to research yes. into? And, you know, and I can't remember the answer to this one, but I loved it. Someone came in because, you know, when you sit on the hillside outside of Eurus Library and you look over the, that uh, you can see the sunset, right? Someone came in and asked about what makes the sunset, what makes the sunset's colors? How do the sunset, um, you know, what is the prism that causes all of the colors at sunset? I loved that question. I did look it up. And it was, and we found it, um, it was, um, it was a very scientific answer that for something that's very beautiful. Um, and, um, but I don't remember all the answers, but of course it had to do with refractions and the gases and the clouds and everything. And I learned that every once in a while at a sunset, there's a very unusual, it's highly unusual flash of green that most people don't ever get to see. It's a, you're very lucky if you see it, it happens rarely. So that was my other question that I really liked. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> so it sounds like you, from answering these questions, you develop this ability for research. Um, I'd be interested in hearing as, as, as you've built up your research skills, is there anything that you think is particularly insightful for someone that might not be a librarian, but would like to, to 
get better research skills that they might be able to apply from what you've learned? Well, I think, you know, one of the things, great things that librarians do is they're also teachers. And I think if someone wanted great research skills, they should go to their library because I don't, I almost every library I've ever been in has really specialized. Um, they either have classes on how to do research. I know that Cornell does that. We certainly did that at the public library. Um, and we had a lot of information literacy um, classes. And, you know, and then there's specialized research, like there's a lot of people doing ancestry research, um, you know, and um, so, you know, the research is always, it's focused differently in academic libraries as opposed to public libraries. But most libraries have a lot of handouts and aids that will help people in classes. So I think that, um, you know, some a lot of people are afraid to go in a library and they're t- intimidated. I mean, you go in and you see this vast you know, building of all these materials and I think it makes people feel unsure. The one thing about a really good public library, for example, I mean, academia is different, but in a public library, you want it to be as welcoming as possible so people feel comfortable asking you questions. And there are people who come into the library who love it so much they don't want to ever leave. <laughs> And we have all the librarians I know, even in academia, had groupies, people who loved them, who wanted to come in and just talk with them. Sometimes people don't know that they need research skills. So I don't know what you do about that. But I do know that libraries have a lot of resources and they put them right online. You know, you could probably find tutorials on doing research right online. When when I was at SUNY Binghamton, I, I remember was when Wikipedia had first come out and it was very controversial and professors didn't want people to use it because they felt like it was not an authenticated uh, research database. You know, it's, you know, it was, it was crowdsourced. Um, And so I would meet with professors and say, you can view it as a way of getting people started so that you can then move the student to more scholarly research, but it's sort of an introductory, I view it as introductory. Um, Mm. and you know, it seems to have lost a lot of the, that, um, it's importance. Wikipedia is just, it's convenient, but it's really not reliable. That's a problem. So, you know, I think sometimes people don't know what they need in terms of research and that's where a library can really be helpful. One of the things I think has changed since the, the internet has become a bigger part of our lives is at least in my opinion, I've noticed that some people have gotten lazier with their research because now you have so much information available and you can literally just type on Google, like, what is <laughs> like, what is this? And then you click on the first link, boom, you think you have the answer. Whereas before, like my mom, when she was talking about studying, uh, researching for a PhD, you'd have to go to a library and physically look for the reference. So That's do you right. think that mm-hmm. there's any any ways that people can, even with these online resources, try and be more intentional about the research they're doing to is to not? It wor- yes, yeah, so that worries me a little because it's one of the things like I told you about the image of the of the uh, fire hydrant with the water spout. That's how information is like it's 
you know, it's everywhere. All the, and it's all, you know, it's the information that's both accurate and inaccurate. And one of the things that I've seen a lot in the, in the proliferation of information is someone will look something up and they just go to the first thing that they see. It might not be accurate, but because it was online, you know, people seem to think it's more um, accurate or more reputable or, or truthful because they looked it up on a computer. And so there are a lot of programs in academic and public school, I mean, in all libraries, for what I call information literacy, literacy is how do you assess the accuracy of the information that you find online. And you can find a lot of tutorials and um, on library websites, and I'm sure they have them right at Cornell. If you're at Cornell, you should take a look at their the, the Olin and Uris website, because I'm sure that they have... Uh, research tutorials and gui guidelines for how do you verify the accuracy. That's a big issue for libraries, um, especially academic libraries when students are doing research. It's helping them assess and find uh, uh, materials that are accurate and that are, um, you know, have been uh, or have been vetted. That's a real challenge. You know, I think that's going to be ongoing forever. It was true, though, even with books. I mean, because people would write inaccurate books. It's just that online is so different and so immediate. And so I think it gives it a, an authority that perhaps, um, you know, you could usually, I mean, actually, like, as a librarian, I feel like I can judge a book by its cover. I mean, I can, can tell, you know, and you can look at the publisher. Is it a verifiable publisher? But online, you just get a list and sometimes people will go to that first one and just decide that it's okay, and it might not be. So having mm -hmm. some information literacy skills, I think, is essential. One thing I've noticed in particular as I've gotten more into academic research in psychology is I've come face to face with the fact that verifiability is much more of an issue than I thought it was, and particularly in psychology, where there is a massive replication crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, it was honestly terrifying to go through articles and then go to the sources that they cite mm -hmm. and see that it just does not support what they said with the citation sometimes, mm -hmm. which was terrifying, honestly, because you, you think like if it's in an academic journal, 100% everything they say is going to be true which mm -hmm. isn't necessarily the case. And I think another uh, big issue that we're, we're coming up with here as a theme is if people go to the first link, it becomes even worse when you start to create uh, a echo chamber where the stuff you get recommended is stuff that you is just confirming what you already believe. While that can be a good thing because, you know, you probably want to read stuff that you enjoy, if you aren't aware of the fact and intentional about the fact that the information is going to be biased, it can lead to bad conclusions. So that's one of the things when, you know, early on I mentioned a book that was written, I want to say about 2004, 2005, it's called The Long Tail. And it's about that very phenomenon where people narrow their... Um, scope of research to find things that fit what they're looking for. And I do think, you know, most of the time people tend to think with the vast amount of information that's online that they've, con you know, they've gone and done all the research. But in fact, 
the um, sometimes the um, depending on search engine optimization, they have narrowed what they're they've tailored it as you said to be just what they want, and I think that's that is something that has become very common, and that is that's a little bit of a worry. Now maybe that happened with print books when they only used print books and they only took certain things. I mean they would only go to certain books to find to verify what they wanted, but it seems to be happening at a faster rate now I think with online materials but I think we I think the online world is fantastic <laughs> I mean I wrote I just I wrote a book recently it was just published you know in um, August and you know of course being able to find to use online re the online uh, world was because I found videos and international materials uh, that I never would have found otherwise or because I would have had to travel all over to get to those print materials so you just have to be, I think we have to be thoughtful and be able to evaluate carefully. How do you think you can bring that thoughtfulness and, and intentionality when using online resources? Well, you know, you think you can, there are always ways. That's why I say that, you know, the, the resources that, the, that most libraries have created to help students and patrons identify. I mean, there are all kinds of tools that they've developed that can help you look at the website and, you know, how is the website, how is the, you know, the HTTPS slash, you know, how does that look? You can look for things in the web address to know whether or not something is accurate or good. So there are lots of little tools that you can use. There are resources like snopes.com where you can go to find out if something's true or not. So I, I think there are a lot of ways to do that, but people aren't necessarily aware of them. And that's why I think libraries have a responsibility to teach um, what I was calling information literacy. How do you research something and know whether or not it's accurate? But, you know, it seems like it all works out because if someone prints something in the New York Times that's really wildly inaccurate, some reporter's gonna find it and call them out. <laughs> they will they will uncover the, <laughs> the they love there are people shaggery. who love to there are just people who love to find everybody's mistakes and you know mm -hmm. reveal them. So if you're gonna do yeah. some research you better make sure you do it correctly. One of the things that I find most interesting about this whole discussion with the internet is we talk about it as if it's like something that's been out for a while, but it's only, it's only been out for like 20 plus years. Like that is not that much time. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting questions is how society is going to continue to change as the ramifications and consequences of the internet as a information, uh, dispenser keeps acting and i'd be interested to hear do you do you have any idea how you think society might change because of the internet in the future it's interesting to me i see I mean, for example you were you know, sometimes what i see is that something that looks brand new and like it's never been done before actually has <clears> been done <throat> before in terms of online like concept mapping virtual reality, both all of it is really, they're all just different forms of information. And you that's one of the great things that librarians do is they identify different forms of information, whether it's a database, the internet, a print book, and you figure out how do people need to access this? How do we make it available? How do we ensure that 
they're getting accurate information. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, the only thing I can think of that might really change is, you know, artificial intelligence. Maybe we are really all living in the matrix. I don't know. You know so, <laughs> um, so, so I was like, maybe we'll get to that if we're not. But um, right now, I mean, I think that there will always be new forms of information and new forms of mm-hmm. automated information and online information. Um, and that's a good thing. I don't see that we have to have an either or world. I think we need all forms. There's so many things I want to comment on that. I think one of the the most interesting things about that, um, about the internet and why the question was purposely very difficult to answer is really going to, it makes it impossible to predict what's actually going to happen in the future because mm-hmm. there are more opportunities than ever before for incredibly niched groups and uh, information mediums. Like on on YouTube, for instance, the amount of YouTube channels that are on such specific things because they allow people to find those specific things through the algorithm Mm -hmm. is incredible. And you didn't see things like this in the 1950s when... There, there was only two channels or something to watch on television. You know, I actually had a really interesting discussion a couple of weeks ago during Thanksgiving break with one of uh, my friend's dads. Uh, it was all about how the internet has changed the sense of community with especially neighbors in community and also even your family. And the reason is, because of the internet, it's no longer the case where when you go up to your neighbor, for instance, you can just fall back on talking about, ooh, what's one channel that every everyone is watching on television? The chance that they are consuming the same information that you are is so infinitesimally low. It's very unlikely you'll be able to, to bond yeah. over that. And I've noticed in my own experience with the Cornell community and my my family is I feel like I've I've grown more distant from my community because we don't consume the same information. But in my family, I've purposely tried to uh, share podcasts that I like and share videos and share books. Uh, and so I feel like we've grown stronger, but the community has gotten weaker. I think you're right, though. But and I think that the news itself, I mean, there used to be three news state you know like there's abc nbc and cbs and then cnn came along and then um msn i mean and then so it's all very fractured and i i think that you know so many people don't even turn on a television to get their news they get it from the computer right so they do get everything from the computer and the internet and it was you know it's been interesting to see how news outlets had to adapt to um, not just regular television, but putting it online. And YouTube, I think, is a fascinating example because at first it was just a place for people to put like home movies, you know, and or create something funny. And um, and now I have I know people who only they will only watch movies on YouTube or they subscribe to YouTube and they you know it's it's become um, a greater entity in itself, which I find interesting. And I looked up the book. I was looking for that book. Um, It's called The Long Tail, Why the Future of Business is Selling Less of More. Um, He was, it was written by um, an author named Chris Anderson, 
who was an editor-in-chief of Wired magazine. It came out in 2006. Um, and it says it's an expansion of his 2004 article in Wikipedia, which I find interesting. So I went to a talk by, that he made, and he one of the things he talked about is the last big shared album by a, a group. I think it was the Backstreet Boys, or, or I can't remember, whatever, whoever Justin Timberlake was with. Um, he, you know, that, that was the last multi-million dollar um, album that sold that everybody wanted because everything started to fracture into exactly what you're saying is that people started to narrow their world and only interact with news outlets and books and um, resources that fit their niche. They, everything became niche. I'm, I'm interested in hearing from your perspective, how do you think that this niching, which is possible because of the internet has affected the social interaction of people in everyday society depends on the location you know i think that it could be kind of a negative effect because if you're only getting information from people who agree with you you know it's only you're really limiting your your society in some ways you're not growing and adapting and I, i think that's probably something that would be of concern you know, so people aren't, you know, it used to be that you traveled to learn more about cultures and differences. And now I think people are narrowing into sameness. So um, could it could be a worry and I it might fracture, might have a, a negative impact on society. I totally agree. I, I think that one of the people that I've uh, seen impacted by this most is actually my brother who's studying in Utrecht in the Netherlands right now. One of the things that he says he's struggling with is he feels like in his physical environment, there is not many people that he really resonates with on a intellectual or uh, social level. And he's found people on the internet that he resonates with. But even though he does resonate with those people, there's something so different about being in person with someone like that mm-hmm. and being online in a way that I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I personally think having both relationships online and also in person is important, but it's definitely affecting him that he can't find anyone in the physical environment that he mm-hmm. feels that way. That's interesting, and I, I hope I hope he does. That's hard to be so far away from that. Um, well, you know, we saw that during the pandemic. I think for many people, I mean, it was great. You have Zoom. You have now. I'm like, I know a new systems in Castor, which I did not know. I like to learn new things, um, but you know, there was there's FaceTime and so forth. So you I mean all of the virtual, the the accept, having meetings and talking to people virtually exploded during the pandemic and that really allowed um, for, um, it was great. I think it was needed, help people kind of get through, but there's something very different in being talking to a computer than being in person and being able to really, um, there's so many subtle communication things in person um, that I, I, I think that's, it can be, you know, you, I think you need both, both in, in person. I think another thing that 
adds on to it with not just him, but also everyone that I, every student I've seen at Cornell is with this proliferation of information, uh, people almost aren't as, as grateful for the fact that they have access to it. And it actually makes them uh, less interested in sometimes tapping into the power of, of the internet. Like the fact that we have Netflix where you can watch any, <laughs> any show you want to pretty much uh, people abuse it. <laughs> They'll just like, <laughs> they just watch it all the time. And yeah. I think that there's, much less of a healthy relationship with technology now. Uh, and I, I've seen it in Cornell, Cornell students around me, just like using TikTok all of the time. Uh, have you noticed that yes. at all? Yes. Because um, <laughs> what I remember is, okay, so what was first? I remember when, I remember the day Twitter started when, you know, when it was Jack Dorsey. Um, I was at, so that might've been 2000. 6 2007 facebook was about 2007 um and then you know then it, then it just started to you start to get more and more and more different kinds and then of course um when i went i um I, yeah, i've been retired but in 20 2021 the public library asked me to come back for four months the person who replaced me retired and they asked me to come back and help the library figure out how to open after the pandemic and restore their hours. And TikTok was the big thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, I remember when people, when it first, they first started talking about TikTok, I didn't pay any attention to it. And, but the, the library, some of the library staff were all about TikTok and they wanted to make TikTok videos and have me be part of it. And of course I was going to do it because I want to promote the library. But it was really mm -hmm. interesting to me. And some of them had used Tumblr for the teens. And I mean, so there were so many different online resources that people love to use. Um, and I, I do worry that, um, it, and, and so now Facebook has kind of fallen off and now it's just old people. Somebody told me. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and now, so TikTok and I think, it, 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 yes, TikTok is a big thing right now. Right. Oh, oh yeah. my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I have all those because I, I would like to keep up and learn, but I'm not particularly interested in it. To me, it's, it seems rather shallow, you know, um, mm -hmm. but some of them are hilarious and they're, I mean, they're so funny. I love them. It was very funny. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in the South and I, someone sent me a TikTok of this um, woman down South, you know, explaining, well, someone says, you know, I like to, get a, a pan out and the woman's saying oh no no that's not how we say it down south we say boiler you need a boiler yeah. i don't know the whole thing just made me laugh so hard because it was so on target mm -hmm. just at some point. but i you know i don't know i mean again i think you we have to you know you can look at all of these things as fracturing society but i imagine in the past there were things where i can there were certain books that they didn't want anyone to read that gradually made their way into society and nothing bad happened. People had learned to have a different experience of reading a book and um, mm -hmm. different politics. So I think people aren't so different from generation to generation. Yes, we're very modern, but how we interact with resources 
I don't think is so different than how it's been. And so, you know, we, we are adapting. We're an adaptive species. So I think people, I think it'll be okay. Maybe I'm overly optimistic because every time, I mean, there was Twitter and then you know, first it was the internet and they had chat rooms and that was big thing, chat rooms. And then they had these like channels that you could be on. And then there was FaceTime and then there was Twitter and then, you know, all the other second life and all the other virtual reality. And, um, and now there's TikTok and then, and then there was Tumblr and then there was, there's Pinterest for heaven's sake. That was like, what? <laughs> you know, there's another one that's similar. So all of these things come along and yes, I think they narrow people's experiences, but they also just become additional resources. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, I, 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 I don't know that any one thing is going to take us down. Yeah, Maybe cryptocurrency. <laughs> Maybe cryptocurrency. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but um, they're all just different forms of communication and we, I mean, think about how disruptive the telegraph was and the telephone and television. You know, I mean, I think the telephone has probably had a greater impact on society than any of this technology because, you know, that was a time where the only way to communicate was by writing a letter before telephones. You know, so... Mm -hmm. It's, I think it's both good and bad that we're developing all these different things like TikTok and so forth. And they have to go through, you know, you can see it with what's happening with Twitter right now. It was popular. People loved it, blah, blah, blah. And then right now it's sort of going through a meltdown stage. So I think there's an up and a down for every single tool. It's just a tool. It's a communication tool. And mm -hmm. I think because it feels so immediate and personal when you look at it, it can, it can seem as though the impact throughout the world is uh, tremendous. And sometimes it is used in incorrect ways to stir up trouble. And that's really concerning. But, but if you think of them just as tools, you can at least manage it for yourself on a day-to-day -day basis. I totally agree. I think for a good portion of the talk, we definitely talked about the negatives of the internet. But I, I think it's important to emphasize just how powerful it can be if you know what you're doing and if you know the biases that you're prone to as a human and also how to navigate in the correct way uh one of the things that i sometimes still laugh about is the fact that when i'll be reading a philosophy book by like marcus aurelius or seneca and I'll just be like, ha, 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 you can't listen to podcasts while walking to class. <laughs> you, you would have had to, you would have had to like go to the local, whatever library they had in back then. And then like have your limited selection of books. Whereas I can just go on the internet and just buy literally anything Absolutely. I want to. Well, they may um, have just got a tablet with, you know, stone. <laughs> <laughs> You know, or some oral, well, you had the oral tradition, you know, that's where, how we have Beowulf and, um, you know, the Odyssey. I mean, it all started as. Iliad. Oral. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, you had the orator who had to memorize all these things and pass them along um, to historians. Mm -hmm. So um, each generation, each 
each era has its own tools and these are just tools. That's one of the reasons I'm, I'm so interested in uh, the modern day personal knowledge management movement, which I, I know you read uh, about mm-hmm. in my article, because yeah. this seems to be a movement of, of people trying to figure out how can we bring uh, a mindset, uh, methods, and tools to knowledge in a way that allows us to understand and and a, and distill and organize and create the things that we want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I think particularly interests me about the entire concept of uh, a second brain and note taking, which has been around way before the internet. It's just a term that we use for it now. I mean, we people have been note taking ever since using stone and wood, <laughs> which mm-hmm. granted was not a very efficient way mm-hmm. to take notes. But uh, the thing that interests me about the concept of like capturing information is if you search in your second brain, say I search in my Obsidian database for uh, an article that I want to write, for some notes that I want to corroborate into a piece. Uh, I am looking at information that is already past my senses because I've read it, I've consumed it. And in the act of consuming it, I probably uh, saw if it resonated with me or not. So by searching inside of my second brain, instead of on the internet, when I'm in the article writing stage for a piece, I reduce the chance that I will go down a rabbit hole of insane Mm -hmm. proportions. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on on that idea. What you're doing is creating your own research database, essentially. Um, Mm -hmm. Because it sounds like the tool that you use, you collect, you have a collection in that system of things that you have read so that you're creating your own database. So I think that's a really interesting thing. And I don't, you know, I would have to think about how, how I would use that. I, um, the one thing I have, have seen sometimes with people doing research online as opposed to reading a print book is they don't absorb the information as well by reading online. But I don't know if it's a generational thing because I think your generation is what's called born digital because so you came Mm -hmm. up, you went through school with all computers. So, you you know, um, I remember at Binghamton, I was working with a graduate dean. We were watching, tracking how, noticing that students were um, becoming more visual learners. Um, because they were looking at things online as opposed to reading texts. So I think um, I could see how brains are being changed and evolving to do what you're talking about. So, I mean, I think it's a really interesting thing. It's not a system that I would use. I like paper. I mean, I like print. I like the computer, too. I'm on the computer all the time. But um, but I, I would prefer to read. I get easily distracted by online. So it is interesting to think about. And I could see where in the future, having something like, um, and again, it's an example of that long tail where you're creating a niche database, 
it's a customized database that you're creating. So, but I could see how that would, um, you know, if you're able to read online on screen and retain it, and it sounds like you are, then you, I think brains are being changed to do that. So I could see how it would be a very valuable and powerful tool. So instead of having a bookshelf, you will have an online library of things. And it might not bring books, but it might be images, um, articles, you know, databases or parts of databases or um, uh, formulas and scientific documents and things. So it's interesting to think about. It's not something that I'll do, but I, I, I could absolutely see how it happen, it could happen and how it could be very valuable. I, I'm interested in what you said about the the generational difference that you've seen of how like I'm assuming people in your generation uh, prefer much more analog techniques compared to the people in my generation. I've seen much, much more people taking notes on tablet or mm -hmm. on laptops. How do you think that that affects the people? So, you know, it, it is interesting. So I, um, I, you know, I remember when we all got our, the, the first computers and they were very big and then you had the floppy disk and then you had the flash drive, you know, and so, so I think that, um, I don't know. I think that I see people now, you know, grandmothers and other people, I'm not a grandmother, I have no children, but, um, people my age who are very comfortable with technology, but they weren't born digital, so they had to learn it and had to become comfortable. And I think it's, you can see that it, it is evolving because the fact is that, you know, I always see who are the most people who are on Facebook, for example, because at one point that was the thing. It's not students anymore. They're just not, you know, there's no young people, not a lot of young people using Facebook as their social media. They're using, as we were talking about, TikTok or other things. So, but, you know, people in my generation and even maybe the next generation down are really comfortable with it now. They weren't at first. They thought it was awful. They weren't going to use it, blah, 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 blah. I had to convince the dean at Binghamton to let us use it. I'm like, this is going to be a big thing. We really need to have Facebook. He didn't like it. He didn't think it was going to be any good, you know. So um, it's just like when I went to, when I was getting my MLS and I took the very first database searching a class that was strictly on database searching, figuring out Boolean logic and searching uh, bibliographic retrieval. And some of the other professors didn't want the professor that who was teaching it to teach it because they said, this is never going to last. And I find it fascinating that there's always a group of people who say, this is just, you know, it's not going to last. Once you introduce something brand new, it's, I'm sorry, it's going to it's gonna it's gonna be there so what you're talking about i think people will have to learn to adapt to because it will probably change the way um, students study and um, conduct research and how eventually it will have an impact on how things are taught and so i think it's really important to pay attention to it there is a generational difference you know, so I think that I'm very comfortable with computers. I always have been. I have no problem hacking around and figuring out how to use things. But I have a lot of friends who took them a long time to get a tablet or get a smartphone. Or, um, you know, now they're all, as you know, hip and groovy and everything. You know, everybody loves it. But um, my mother, for example, she was a senior um, engineer for the telephone company before it divested. So... And one of her jobs was wiring computer boards. 
So she understood how the data traveled. You know, and I thought that was fascinating, but she never, ever wanted a smartphone. I just couldn't understand it because I'm like, but you helped set this whole system up, you know, but she did not <laughs> found it too confusing. You know, she just, she, I'll just look in the phone book. Of course, they don't make phone books anymore. <laughs> so um, I was really interested in what you were, you know, I looked at all of the information that you sent because you know, I could see how um, it's very personalized too what you're doing, very personalized. And I can see the value of that. It's not unlike, and generations past, those who could afford to create in a personal library. So that's what you're doing. It's just a mm -hmm. different format. Yeah, it used to, it actually was called commonplace books uh, mm -hmm. back in history. It was just like big books where people would, creatives or artists or scientists would just write down like, all of their ideas inside of mm -hmm. uh, it's very similar to that just organized in a in a different way. different way i found i found what you said with the generational difference really really insightful because i think that one uh one thing that i talked about with my mom today uh, she visited earlier was uh she was having a discussion with another one of her colleagues about the use of of email and one the colleague told her, she was like, you know, I'm so proud of myself. Today, I I finally figured out how to send links through email. I didn't know you could do that. And my mom was just like, what? <laughs> what? what? Like, yeah. what do you mean you didn't know you yeah. could didn't know you could send links through email? So it's really, yeah. Yeah. So, they so have your no mom, idea. It, you know, it is very, it is, I see that when I was at the public library, I could really see that generational difference because we had a lot of older people who came in to use the computers who didn't have a computer at home. And then, so what's one of the reasons when I did fundraising, I did fundraising for um, a digital lab so that we could teach classes on how to responsibly use the internet, you know, uh, because people, because one of the things that's happened, of course, is, um, so for example, every, uh, you know, March and April tax time, um, we had, we had the, the government doesn't send out paper forms anymore. So they encourage people to do their taxes online, but there are many people who don't have a computer. So the library orders big stacks of print forms, and then people come to their local public library. It happens all over the country um, to get their tax forms, or they can come in and have a librarian help them uh, look up the correct form and print it, or they can sit and do their, their taxes online at the computer. So, but they're not necessarily good at um, knowing how to protect their privacy or close out sessions um, so that they don't get hacked. So it was one, it was, one, it was a big push to um, create to, to have a digital lab so that we could teach digital literacy. And so I know they do that, and that's really great at the public library. So the generational thing is going to be around for a while, but by the time you get to be my age, there's going to be nobody left who didn't have all the digital access. And that's going to be an mm -hmm. interesting world. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting to, to, to me to see, like, uh, which people seem to be affected more by that generational difference. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is my parents are both teachers. So they interact with young people all the time. 
mm-hmm. my mom's a high school teacher. My dad's a college professor. Mm-hmm. So they, even though they are of such a different generation, they're exposed to all of this new things like Obsidian. Uh, Obsidian's a very new app. It's only been out for around two and a half years. Uh, it only came out of early access a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. So the only reason my mom knows about this is because of me. But mm-hmm. I can easily, easily see if you weren't in a situation where you're interacting with young people all the time like this, just getting happen. absolutely drifted away from the times. Totally. And I think that does happen a lot. And I was fascinated because, you know, I, I, well, I was fascinated. I'm fascinated, but I'm interested in the whole um, generational thing too, because I like paper. I mean, I keep a diary every day. I have a journal that I write in every day. It's a really good memory tool as well. And so, um, but I like paper and I think the connection between the brain and the hand writing something is very different than the computer. But for you, because you are, um, uh, you're born digitalism, that connection is with the computer. I wanted to know, like, one of the, the things that we've talked about is how powerful librarians as a resource can be, but how underutilized they often are. And I'd I'd love to hear for anyone listening, what are some actionable steps you would recommend they could take to utilize librarians a bit more than they might right now? Do you mean the general population, young people, or just the world at large, or all of those? I would say, I would say young people in particular, because I think they, I mean, I certainly did not appreciate uh from what you're saying the power that librarians can bring to uh navigating the internet you know that is a um it's a good question because so the whole time i worked at cornell and at suny binghamton in academia um i think that students i think there's the same i don't know that it's any different now the one thing that's different is that most people assume they can just go online and find everything but i think most students just figured they could go find a book and know everything. So um, I don't think that has changed. It may not change from when I was at the reference desk and people would come in and think they could just get a book, you know, because now they think they can just go online. But sometimes they happily discover that if they go to a reference desk, they get the right book. <laughs> it's good. You know, so um, I often think that you know, li- li- there you you need to have librarians who are very extroverted, who are really comfortable talking to people about why libraries and research, um, verified research in libraries is important. I like doing mm-hmm. that. I was always the person they sent to do that because I like talking to people. I like being a librarian. A lot of librarians are very introverted because they like the research and they like cataloging. So you know, that's always been a push pull with libraries. Is, how do you how do you advertise why libraries are valuable other than just collecting yeah. materials so well thank you <laughs> thank you for that answer and my last question which is something i ask everyone on the podcast is what are three books that have spoken to you well i read about i try to read no, no less than 55 books a year i'm trying to reach 100 generally every year so like i'm a voracious reader so for me, one of the books that I was just—I just was in a, a went to I'm in a book room. We were talking about a book to read. One of the books 
it, one of my favorite books was a book by uh, A.S. Byatt, B-Y-A-T-T, named Possession. It won the Booker Prize. So that's one book that um, it was so good. I stayed up all night to read it. I actually, it's the only time in my life I ever called in sick when I was not sick. So I could just read it. <laughs> so, you know, it took me about 24 hours. It was a big book. It's a big, thick one. And I loved it. And it's great, you know, because it covers the, it starts as a, um, in the, the 19th century with a kind of Samuel Taylor Coleridge-esque poet. It's made up. It's all fiction. And it was people were discovering science and nature and botany and biology. And then it goes forward into um, modern, you know, into the 20th century. And it's a skewers academia. And I was working at Cornell at that point. It was very good. I love that book. I thought it was fabulous. Um, I'm a huge Jane Austen fan. And I loved um, my favorite Jane Austen uh, book is, I mean, most people say Pride and Prejudice, but I liked Emma. The reason I think Jane Austen was one of the first feminist authors, because, I mean, people say, oh, they're just romances, you know, women getting married. But at that time, I mean, she's constantly talking about the, what was happening socially. Um, these women had no options. They couldn't do anything. They couldn't work, you know, and they often just got married off. So if you really read it as a social commentary, there's a lot of information about um, um, women's rights in there. Um, subtle. And the third book, um, oh my gosh, it's so hard. There's so many. But there is another book that I love that's about libraries. That's a book called um, The 16 Pleasures. And that is about an archivist who goes to Florence, Italy, to help um, preserve and, and repair materials that were ruined by a, a flood of the Arno River. And while there, she stays at a convent, nuns, and she discovers in their library a very rare book of medieval pornography. And it would, you know, it would sell for millions and millions of dollars. And the church fathers want to take it and put it in the Vatican along with all the other valuable things. She smuggles it, but she wants the money to go to the convent because they have a lot of needs. So she figures out a way to smuggle it over to get the money to go to the convent. But the, there's also a secondary story about her relationship with her mother who was dying. And um, so that was a very beautifully written and funny book. And those are three books that I often, when people say, what books would you recommend to me? Those are three books that I would recommend. I am going to put all of those on my to-be-read list. 